This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. You are a colleague of mine at TNT, but you're also the head of Principia Scientific. I almost had the words switched, um, which is a great website about science. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, Principia Scientific is my main focus, Jeremy. I, I, 90% of my time is with Principia Scientific. I've done it for 13 years. My original uh, team that I set up uh, in 2010 um, was to write a book. We wanted to write a book and a lot of us were very annoyed about the misrepresentation of thermodynamics by climate science. I mean, it was shocking to us because most of my friends and colleagues were applied scientists, PhDs in thermodynamics, in chemistry, experts in industry in CO2. My, my good friend um, Joe Olson, as you know, fellow colleague at TNT Radio, um, he's very well read. Um, he's an, um, an engineer, not just an ordinary engineer, but a materials engineer. He knew very well that um, carbon dioxide in industry was only ever used to cool things. And we couldn't fathom why computer models used by climate scientists were making CO2 turn out to be some trace gas in the atmosphere that so allegedly trapped heat or delayed cooling. And we had lots of debates separately, you know, over the previous 18 months. We were in chat rooms on forums and we, we crossed paths and we were realizing there was a hardcore of us from the applied scientists. My, my background as a teacher. And we were saying to these so-called climate experts that they were missing a trick. They didn't comprehend the fact that um, the Earth um, is not a closed system, it's an open system, and entropy being what it is, heat escapes. Um, and their so-called test, their so-called proof, the validation of their idea that CO2 traps heat was this stupid little experiment. It's a botched experiment where they... Um, put uh, CO2 in a flask, in a sealed flask, and another flask of another gas, and they, they apply heat, and, and they say, well, there you go, look. I mean, they, they prove, they prove it to their own satisfaction that in their little fake experiment that CO2 does appear to trap heat. But as you can imagine, that, that the atmosphere is nothing like a glass uh, cylinder, a glass container. And we said, well, we know how CO2 works in industry because it's been used as a refrigerant gas for 120 years. They were arguing that um, it's proven that it traps heat. Um, but we said, hold on, every gas will trap, every gas will trap heat momentarily. And we said, if you have, do, you, do you know that it's the most um, it, the fastest emitting gas of, of energy of it have heat that, that we know it, it, it's so efficient at emitting energy it's used as a refrigerant you know and um time and time again we get in these debates and they would shut us down they would ignore us and they say well you're not part of the uh, ac academia you're not you know you don't provide any peer-reviewed material you haven't written anything in any approved journals so it became evident it was a closed shop. The closed shop being what it is, it's a power review system. We couldn't. We tried to submit our own articles, our own papers, using all the known scientific laws, second law of thermodynamics, you know, everything that we could think of that was relevant. Um, it was 
banging our head against a wall because they wanted to talk about um, logarithmic uh, heating, logarithmic effects of heating. And we said, well, it doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to put the, set the mathematics to the side and actually get out there in the field and do testing. And we were very fortunate. We met a guy, one of our friends was um, uh, Professor um, Nassif Nal, Nassif Nal, who was a chemical physicist uh, down in Monterey in Mexico, who totally agreed with what he was saying. And he was in the process of setting up uh, open air experiments of CO2 to test if CO2 could trap heat and delay cooling in the atmosphere. He went to great lengths in Monterey, and if you know anything about Mexico, Monterey, it's pretty much a gangland, you know, and he had to do the, these experiments in the city overnight. And the local community, the local mayor was very supportive, and uh, he had police guards during his experiments. He wouldn't be, wouldn't be attacked. And, and his experiments vindicated everything we said. They corroborated what we knew in industry, that CO2 is a wonderful cooling gas. If you apply it, if you heat it and turn off the heat, it cools instantaneously in nanoseconds. In uh, NASA now proved in the atmosphere, CO2 will cool within three nanoseconds. But not only that, Jeremy, you probably know that it, it, it's a trace gas in the atmosphere. It's at very historic low levels. Uh, we currently have just over 400 parts per million. And uh, we, we know, I mean, because again, we're applied scientists, we know that our friends in horticulture, when they want to grow, improve their growth and the, the yield of their plants, they will pump in CO2 into the greenhouses, and the greenhouses would have over a thousand parts per million. And that's optimum, you know, that's optimum. And in fact, if you look at the geological history of the planet, we're at historically low levels of CO2. And in fact, if we go below 250 parts per million, plants die, everything dies. So, you know, we're fighting the ignorant here, Jeremy. We're fighting um, group mentality that is a closed shop. We had amazing head-to-head um, -head confrontations with so-called skeptics. I mean, I'll name, I'll name a couple of names because we 90% agree with them. Uh, guys like Roy Spencer, um, Richard Linzen, uh, uh, Lord Moncton, um, down there, Joe Nova, down in Australia. These, these are great advocates for, for, for um, attacking the alarmism of saying that um, the whole thing is a scam, but they miss a trick. They miss a very big trick, Jeremy, because they don't seem to grasp that, that CO2 does no warming. They, they want to play the middle ground and say, well, we'll concede there's some warming, but so little that it can be ignored. But they, they're not, all of them are not trained in thermodynamics. They're not hardcore applied scientists. And uh, Dr. Pierre Latour um, came, into the, he came into our team about two years after we started. Dr. Pierre Latour, um, he, he's in uh, Who's Who. He's uh, got a distinguished career with DuPont. He worked on the Apollo space program. He actually devised um, some of the apparatus for the Apollo moon mission. You, you can't get more qualified and more esteemed scientists. And uh, Dr. Latour daily worked with using CO2 in industry at DuPont. And he was gobsmacked that, um, that the gerrymandering and the, 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 the corner cutting, the kind of using botched methods, the, the idea of using logarithmic scale to predict a warming by CO2. Um, it's like the blind leading the blind. and um, 
he tried. He made a really good effort. He wrote down the numbers. He said, look, I'm going to prove to you what CO2 does in the atmosphere. And they actually found four different ways where CO2 cools in the atmosphere. One of the things that they completely missed, Jeremy, is the effect of photosynthesis. I mean, as we say, you know, CO2 is actually plant food. It's becoming, I mean, when we first started 12, 13 years ago, most people weren't even prepared to, to, to admit even that. It was all a talk of toxic gas, you know, carbon this, carbon that, carbon's toxic. You know, it's not. You know, it, it's a mishmash. It's a deception. In clever use of words, when you conjure up the term carbon, you naturally think of something dirty, you think of coal. Um, but carbon can mean diamonds, you know, it's, it's a broad term, it, you know, it's a base term, it's an elemental term, and it's something that we find is part of the trickery, and we, in my more recent work, I, I was astonished the past three years at the overlap with the COVID fraud, how the same modus operandi, how the same terms, how the same United Nations experts are wheeled out, and these people, um, in their own little group have very high esteem but when you look at it from outside as an outsider from applied scientists the applied sciences we're astonished at how naive and ignorant they are and the crux of the journey to us was the abandonment of the scientific method the, the willingness to just pick up a computer to use algorithms and to forget the hardcore fact that empirical science requires you to go back to the grassroots. You, you have to test a hypothesis. You know, you start with a hypothesis, an idea, then you, what you do is you, you, you know, for example, with, with what you should do with CO2 is actually test it. Look at all the means in the real world where it has an effect. In terms of thermodynamics, the only effect, I mean, we've spent 13 years at this journey, 13 years and all we can see is CO2 is cooling. In fact, um, we found papers going back to 1988, when 1988 was the big year for the greenhouse gas theory. 1988 was when the global um, climate fraud really kicked off in a big way. In that one year, in July of 1988, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher gave a wonderful speech to the Royal Society. And Margaret Thatcher was a scientist. Margaret Thatcher went to Cambridge. She was uh, qualified in chemistry. She knows about CO2. Um, but her agenda was that she wanted to do away with the coal industry in the UK. She was very keen on promoting nuclear power. So she was a politician before she was a scientist, and she quite happily went along with this notion that CO2, the greenhouse gas theory, uh, was problematic. We were emitting too much human CO2. And anybody who knows the science knows there's no difference, Jeremy, between human CO2 and, in, and natural CO2, it's, it's CO2 is CO2, it does the same, it, you know, you can't uh, distinguish between the two. But anyway, she was very persuasive and she uh, was very good at working with Shell. And Shell um, invested heavily in the University of East Anglia, where they set up the Climatic Research Unit. And that was run by a guy called Professor Phil Jones. And Professor Phil Jones built a career gathering data from meteorologists from around the world. And my friend, Dr. Tim Ball, who was the co-founder with me with Principia Scientific, he was a qualified climatologist. He got his PhD in climatology from Queen Mary College in London, University of London. He'd been studying this for since the 1980s. And, uh, he, he died he, recently, sorry. He died recently, yeah, didn't he? 
yeah, Tim died last year, unfortunately. It's such a shame um, because we need him around. Mm. Um, you might have seen his documentary. This was what got me into climate, the, the great global warming swindle mm. um, over here. Channel I think 4 I, did a wonderful yeah. I think I saw that. Sorry for interrupting. I think I saw that in about 2008, thereabouts. Have I got it right? Yeah, you got it right. It came out in 2007, about that time. And uh, Martin Durkin was the producer. Martin Durkin did a wonderful job uh, making this documentary for Channel 4. Channel 4 was a mainstream British TV channel. And the fact it got an airing was astonishing. I got to watch the documentary. And at that time, I was a school teacher. Ironically enough, Jeremy, I was looking at buying a house, you know, on the coast. And I was concerned. I thought, well, you know, sea levels are rising. And because I was teaching this crap at school, I was terribly invested in, you know, my subject. And uh, I watched this documentary and I thought, what the hell is this Tim Ball talking about and these other guys? But then they had guys working ice core samples in the, in, from the, um, the Arctic. And I, thought, I, I said, well, these guys are doing proper science. They're actually, as I said to you, going out in the field, testing the environment, and then seeing through the ice core history, going back thousands of years, you know, the condition of the atmosphere and the temperatures, and there's a correlation between CO2 and temperatures. And ironically, Jeremy, it's the opposite of what they tell you. I mean, you might have saw that awful documentary that won an award by um, Vice President Al Gore. An oh, inconvenient terrible. And I'm showing this documentary in my lessons at school to children, assuming <laughs> this was scientific fact. And um, I sure hope enough, you said sorry. <laughs> oh well, the wonderful thing is that uh, there were enough. There were enough scientists. There were enough. There were people with, with principle said we can't have this. It's a lie. It was actually the reverse. What Al Gore and the climate alarmists were saying was that um, temperatures were rising after CO2 was rising. And they drew, they drew the, the correlation there, but they actually got it back to front. The ice cores prove that the temperature rises first and then the CO2 is released from the oceans into the atmosphere. So it's, um, you know, it, it cause and effect, they've got it all wrong. And um, luckily enough, the, the, the case went to the High Court in the UK, and uh, there was a big co-action about this. And um, as a result, uh, schools in England and Wales were, were told under law not to show Al Gore's phony documentary anymore unless they gave um, the, the, out the, the ruling of the court that there were notable untruths in the documentary. And, and that was one of them, the idea that CO2 could be with a smoking gun. Of, of global warming and it, without that, that that is the very cornerstone of the greenhouse gas theory and um that was a that was a pivotal moment for me jeremy that was my kind of uh, eureka moment and i decided then that i would do a deep dive i wanted i loved the idea of living by the sea i wasn't going to buy a house by the sea unless i knew it was a sound investment and i looked at sea level rises and sure enough there was no evidence for, for any sea level rise you go back hundreds of years and as you and I know, I mean, the former vice president, sorry, the former president of the US, Barack Obama, bought a $12 million seafront apart, a property mansion at Martha's Vineyard. So obviously he doesn't worry about uh, sea level rises. So 
So it, it takes a lot of joined up thinking, Jeremy, and it's something that um, my colleagues and I, time and time again, have said that um, the, the, the crux, the, the way they get away with this fraud is they go to the computer models first. And what they use is the, the concept of post-normal science. Post-normal science is a, a clever, very clever conception. It was, um, it's not been around that long, actually. I mean, it was something that created um, by government scientists when the facts are uncertain, the, um, the predicament is, is impending, you know, you, you need to make, uh, take urgent action, and it's part of public policy to, to do so because it's seen as a major need for action. So this is what they did very cleverly with the pandemic and with global warming. The very idea that you, first of all, you create the alarm. It's, it's the old uh, Hegelian dialectic, you know, mm. problem, reaction, solution, and it's so cleverly done. Um, yeah, and it worked. It worked great with climate, uh, as you know, that um, everybody jumped on the bandwagon. And um, again, going back to to Dr. Tim Ball, he he said he, he identified the, who was behind it all. It's it's Malthusians. It, it's a it's a, yeah. it's a cult. The cult is that um, dystopian oligarch class. Those who have you know, got to be in their bonnet about overpopulation. They, they they are so convinced that we are you know like a disease on the planet. Um, and, and they're very, very well connected. I mean, as you probably know, one of the key um, supporters of this of this movement was uh, none other than like Queen Elizabeth's husband, um, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh. The Duke of Edinburgh famously said when he dies, he wants to come back as a virus and wipe out humanity. Yeah. <laughs> so we're dealing with extremists. These are not level-headed people. They, they have an agenda. And what they do, they then have the money, the means and the resources to tailor make the science to fit their agenda. So it's all asked backwards. They're not doing it the right mm. way around. I found, Jeremy, that the, the, the natural variability is the key. They've got two key things here to create the illusion of a climate alarm. First of all, you don't have the data. We have 100, maybe 180 years of thermometer data from Stevenson screens. Stevenson screens are those white boxes with the slats, you may have seen them about three feet off the ground. They're located all around the world. I mean, there's perhaps nine to 20,000 of them at one point around the world. Um, the problem with Stevenson screens is that they're, they're, they're liable to, to error. I mean, the reason is because of the construction. You've got poor maintenance, poor construction, um, and damage, and also all kinds of things that can cause error. And, it's estimated that the error could be as much as one degree, and that, that's accepted. You know, most people who work in meteorology and so forth have not accepted that. The margin for error for a Stevenson screen is about one degree. And lo and behold, climate alarm, if you go back to Professor Phil Jones at the Climate Research Unit, he, he jumped on this, he was all over the, this with like a rash, and he decided that he could tweak the data to manipulate that margin of error up. So it is actually man-made global warming, Jeremy, but by academics, by <laughs> those in those with the high salaries who are invested in this idea of creating alarm. Let's face it: if your job is uh, to be the you know the fireman, if there's no fires, you're out of a job. So to be a good fireman, you need fires. And um, Phil Jones is putting out fires all over the world. He was going around the world talking to meteorologists, saying, "Look, sign up to um, the UN." Um, 
UN mission, UNIT, started out as UNIT, United Nations Environmental Protection Plan, and that went back to Maurice Strong. And um, Maurice Strong was a, a crook, a gangster, a millionaire who fled Canada. He was such a crook, he fled Canada, but he was very invested in this idea, and he worked with the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome was a very prestigious group, and, and they were all linked. I mean, you've got the head of the World Bank, you've got others very well placed, insiders in the United Nations, all seeing that the UN was a great vehicle you know, to use their appointed uh, expert. These are not vote, as you know, it's not a vote, not by vote, not by merit, not meritocracy, everything's by appointment. So you can, by you know, greasing a few palms, you know, pulling, you know, doing favors, backhanded favors with people, maybe even a bit of bribery, you know, um, blackmail, you can get people to do pretty much what you want. And, and it's just the way business is done. Anybody who's worked in business knows that, you know, there's backhanded deals done. And, and sure enough, over time, You've got the likes of Dr. Michael Mann. Dr. Michael Mann was um, the originator the of the hockey yeah, stick graph. That, yeah, yeah, that hockey stick. You know, the hockey stick graph. And um, mm. my friend Tim Bull, my colleague Tim Bull, you know, very well educated, PhD in climatology, as I said, but a hardcore skeptic, you know, very much into the applied sciences. And he called it out. He called out the fake hockey stick. Um, Michael Mann became the golden boy of the UN IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their um, third report, which became very popular around 1999, 2000. It was like when everything really kicked off, and you know, the media really got hold of this hockey stick. Uh, it, it was very iconic. It's such a simple, clear-cut image that people can, non-scientists can look at and see that for a thousand years, effectively, the hockey stick was 1,000 years of, of the Earth's temperature. And for most of that thousand years, it's a flat line, as you can see, it's the shaft of the hockey stick. And then you've got this amazing uptick, the blade of the hockey stick, if you like, in the 20th century. Um, but the trick here, Jeremy, was that um, Michael Mann used, used bristle cone proxy data. He literally used one or two bristle cones from a region to, to then model the entire uh, temperature of the Earth. And what he wasn't telling anybody was at the very end of the uptick, where the blade comes up, he tagged onto his graph the actual temperature record because the um, bristlecone pines weren't cooperating. They weren't showing an uptick. So he pretty much was mixing apples with oranges. Uh, and people fell for that because, again, who controls the media? I mean, as, as we all know, that uh, just same with COVID, you know, everybody's linked in some way. Um, it's very cleverly put together. It takes decades to put this together. It, I mean, as I said to you, the Club of Rome got together, you know, in the 1970s to set this up. And it was Agenda 2020, Agenda 21, as you probably know, Agenda 21 was set in place as far back as that. Now it's Agenda 2030, because again, people like you and I, we're the fly in the ointment and we cause a delay. We, we've kind of slowed their progress towards this dystopia, reducing the population to 500 million. I mean, it's astonishing, really. The numbers are mind-blowing, if you think about it. They want to reduce the population of the planet from 8 billion down to 500 million. In, a, in effect, you know, you look around you and everybody you know is going to die. You and I are, are no longer needed. Um, and again, you know, they teamed up with people like Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, who's promoting the idea of the... Uh, 
the great reset, as you know, the great reset is all about transhumanism. The idea we can do away with cash, you'll own nothing and, and you'll be happy. Um, it, it's everything is connected. And having to be aware of the fact that they don't all have the same, quite the same ideology. You've got some who are just hardcore profiteers. You've got some who are egomaniacs who just want prestige. You've got others who are absolute cultists and they really believe strongly the world is overpopulated. So they're doing it from a sense of conviction. And they play on the, um, the good nature of ordinary people. There are so many people, I would say eight out of 10 people, most of the people want to do good. So when they see on the news that um, you know, there's a catastrophe brewing and it's for the greater good, people buy into that. It's again very clever, the idea that you're sacrificing yourself. It's like this virtue signaling thing, isn't it, Jeremy? You want to be seen to be doing good, so you go green. And all the renewables are all linked to it. You know, all, all the scam artists, all the snake oil salesmen are making a fast bite with their solar power and their wind power and so forth. Um, yeah, you've got such a mishmash of diverse motives, but again, it it's, they, they, they overlap so neatly so well, it's very cleverly done. And, and I take my hat off to them because, you know, they have very great patience. They do it by stealth. And uh, people like you and I, we work for TNT Radio. We know how hard it is, you know, to, to make, uh, make, make get, get any traction in it. I mean, I've, I've been doing it for so long now and I've lost good friends over this. Uh, members of my family think I'm a nut job. Because <laughs> people are so busy earning a living, Jeremy, to, to do a deep dive into the science and check it out. But, but that's where we are. Okay, but John, let's just talk about then the scientific method. Um, because if we look at climate science, which you've been covering, um, uh, just, just so that I get the order right, I wrote it down in front of me. But it's essentially observation, research, hypothesis, experimentation, data collection, analysis, conclusion, and of course, then communication. But if we go back to <laughs> global warming, okay, we have observation, we have research, we have hypothesis, but it pretty much ends there. It doesn't really go to experimentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, the great thing about climate change, Jeremy, is it's always 50 years into the future. And uh, I've mm. been... <laughs> Those of us who've been around this a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, in the, I was at school in the 1970s, and in the mid-1970s, climate science was talking about global cooling. And they were using the same arguments, CO2 and particulates in the atmosphere are causing, blocking out the sun, and before long, we're going to have not enough sun, not enough solar energy to heat the planet, the ice caps will grow, and we'll have this, these problems. And again, the UN got on board. But it soon transpired that the temperatures weren't cooperating. The temperatures, a natural uptick, you know, because, I mean, we all agree, those of us on our side of the fence all agree that uh, climate changes all the time. It's mm. called natural variation, and we, we don't deny that. But what we say is that man's uh, contribution is so minuscule as to be unmeasurable. But what we can say for a fact is that we're in the middle of an interglacial. We're still, technically, we're still in an ice age. You know, there's, you know, we get, we're in the um, in the Holocene period. You know, and uh, the Holocene optimum was a period of much warmer temperature. If you go back to the global, uh, the medieval warm period, which Michael Mann erased with, you know, a trick of 
of, of a couple of algorithms that were secret science. This is again the, the key here, secret science. He doesn't show his methodology. Again, that's anathema to the scientific method. You have to show you're working out. A good scientist is not afraid to show their calculations they're working out. Like you're doing it when you when your teacher when you're at school and you're you're doing your math calculations, your teacher looks over your shoulder to make sure you're not copying. They want to see you working out, and that's what we want to do. We wanted to do that with Michael Mann and, and um, my colleague Tim Ball called him out and he said, "Michael Mann, you're a fraud. You won't show your data." And he, and he quit. He made a joke. He said, uh, "Michael Mann belongs in State Penn, not Penn State, because he was a professor at Penn State." And that irked Michael Mann so much because Tim Ball was getting such traction, you know, in a wider community, in the independent scientific community, that he just filed a lawsuit. So in 2012, just ironically, just after we published our book, Slaying the Sky Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory, Michael Mann filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Tim Ball for libel up in British Columbia in, in, in Vancouver. And... Um, uh, Michael Mann, uh, sorry, uh, Tim Ball said to me, John, you work, you have some experience in law, you know, can you advise me? And I said, yeah, I do have experience in law. I, I know that you have the truth defense on your side. The very fact that um, in libel, truth is the absolute defense. If you're telling the truth and you can effectively prove that Michael Mann is a fraud, then you win your case. And the way to do that is in the discovery process in court. And I said to Tim Ball, I said, Tim, all you've got to do is hire a good attorney and in the discovery process, in the legal proceedings, demand release of the R2 regression numbers. The R2 regression numbers was the kind of hidden working out, the, the rough scrawl on the back of the envelope, if you like. The way that Michael Mann put together that graph Effectively, it's a validation code. It's verifying that Michael Mann's procedures will have integrity. Um, but Mann refused. Mann would not release his R2 regression numbers. And, and this dragged out year after year after year. And it was a complete abuse of the legal process. And I, literally, after eight years, after eight years of dragging his feet in court, we've, um, uh, I said to Tim Ball, file for dismissal for non-prosecution. And we did. We filed for a dismissal, and the judge saw our point of view and said, "Look, um, it's a delay tactic. It's simply a delay tactic. You know, the, the crux of the case was the hidden data, the secret science, if you like." So we won, and not only did we win, but the judge awarded Tim Bull full costs. And then, after eight years of top lawyers, we we calculated it to be a, a substantial seven-figure sum. Uh, but you can, Michael Mann, being Michael Mann, being a weasel crony piece of shit that he is, he refused to pay. He didn't pay a dime. Um, poor old Tim Ball died without getting a penny. Um, and yet Michael Mann is still honored and he still goes out there. But what really annoyed us to our great chagrin is he then came out and linked climate change to the pandemic. And he was saying those of us skeptics who speak out against the governments about the narrative on, on, on the pandemic were just as criminal as those who speak out about the dangers of climate change. So we were all tired of the same brush. Those doctors who were warning that these so-called vaccines being rushed through were effectively condemned as criminals, as irresponsible. And mm. as you know, many were struck off. Many of them um, were ghosted or many of them had their careers ruined. Um, some of them, you know, came over to our side, began to realize there was a connection, a direct link. The modus operandi between the climate fraud and the vaccine fraud is so similar, it's eerie. 
again, it, a lot of it, it's, it, it revolves around the UN. You've got in the UN, you've got the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. As I said, you've got all these cronies, these oligarchs, who handpick their so-called experts and bring them up, give them honours, um, you know, make them appear better than they really are. And the same mm. with the um, pandemic. You've got um, a guy like Professor Neil Ferguson. Professor Neil Ferguson has been around for the last 15 or more years. He, he came out with things like swine flu. He, he came out with all this nonsense years and years ago, predicting, again, government advisors, they appoint, these are hand-picked government advisors because they play into what the government want them to say. And Neil Ferguson, again, going back to the computer programs, he played with his computer and sure enough predicted in 2020 more than a million people in the UK would die from COVID-19. And as we know, it was a complete farce. And again, he had his mea culpa. He came out a year or two later and said, yeah, I got it wrong. You know, so be it. And he was also caught out for violating the lockdown rules, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, you got it. As we said earlier, the, the people in the know, the Barack Obamas, the Boris Johnsons who have parties in 10 Downing Street, the Neil Fergusons who go out philandering when there's a lockdown, these people actually know the truth. They know there's nothing there to be afraid of. There literally is nothing there to be afraid of whatsoever. Um, yeah, it, it boils down to, you know, their agenda. Again, you know, this is the whole point of the post-normal science. You know, you find some kind of scare story. You concoct a fabricated story. And, and remember, these, the danger is invisible, isn't it? It's, it's a chimera. It's a sky dragon. You know, the dangers, the, they talk about global warming in the most remote places like the Antarctic. Antarctic ice is melting. Arctic ice is melting. It's too far for you and I to verify the facts. Yeah. So, so with the pandemic, you can't see this so-called virus. You're not equipped to, to find the virus. You just believe. You've been told there's a virus. Um, and again, my, my shock was three years ago. And when, when after all these years of seeing the climate fraud, I was seeing the pandemic unwind and thinking, you know what? This is deja vu. We're mm. having the same scenario over again. And uh, I was very fortunate. I had, I had colleagues in the medical profession say to me, John, I think we're going through the same thing again. They were failing with the climate alarm to, to, you know, as you probably know, most people don't fear climate alarm. They don't worry about the so-called global warming. Um, so they had to concoct something even more scary, something more immediate, because 50 years from now, if the, if the glaciers melt, so be it. You know, again, people are selfish. Pandemic was here and now. Pandemic, the virus was here and now. It's going to kill you. It's going to kill your family and your loved ones. You have to act now. You know, um, flatten the curve. Do it now. And again, it's the invisible danger. It's not 50 years away. It's now. But again, you can't see it. So we, we towed the line. And again, it's all about doing, the, doing good for the greater good, yeah, the, the community first. So you're abandoning your own principles for the benefits of others. It's so mm. smart, so shrewd. Because it's probably our weakest point, really, when you, you get put on that guilt trip. And uh, if you put normal people on a guilt trip, they will give way. And, and we give way. And uh, even mm. I, to some extent, gave way. But then I began to read what Dr. Uh, Dr. Saeed Qureshi came into the fore. Dr. Saeed Qureshi, um, he's now a stalwart. He's now a hard, hardcore member of PSI. And he's now wrote the book with me, um, Slaying the Virus and Vaccine Dragon. We spent the last three years with Dr. Julie Weilerman, 
Dr. Julie Wyman is Australia's leading expert on vaccine injury. She's, she's the most qualified expert in Australia on vaccine injury. She's been in this game since the 1990s. You know, nobody knows more about the fakery behind vaccine science than, than her. Um, so together we did the same thing we did with global warming. We decided to pool our resources and do like a survey. We got like 7,000 members across the world of Principia Scientific. People were sending in information, you know, giving us heads up on things to look out for. And one of the things we picked up on, Jeremy, was the fact that um, citizens, citizen scientists were writing to the governments and saying, can you, under freedom of information law, can you please show us a verification of the existence of COVID-19? And uh, sure enough, governments were not complying, or if they did comply, they said, we don't have one. We don't actually have a verified sample of this virus. And Sai Qureshi, who was a bench scientist, he 35 years, he spent 35 years in Health Canada, which is their version of the British National Health Service. And his specialism is as a bench scientist testing vaccines and pharmacology products in the lab. And uh, one of the first things he said to me, first of all, he said, John, the PCR test is not a test. It's a, rep it's a <laughs> process of replicating, of duplicating a sample. And, uh, it all began to you know, make sense then. It's like one fraud on top of another fraud on top of another fraud. And then we found out that Carrie Mullis, Professor Carrie Mullis, who devised the PR, PCR test, who invented it, won a Nobel Prize for it, uh, died in October. Yeah. Just so, before the pandemic. Hang on, because you know this is going to pop up in the comments. So I'm just going to quickly, for the purposes of accuracy, just say that Carrie Mullis invented PCR not the test itself. The test was a protocol as far oh, as yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you know it's going to yeah. come up in the comments, so we just we just want to be accurate here. Yeah, we're, we're kind of um, just simplifying it. But yeah, <laughs> Carrie Mullis came out about the polymerase chain reaction. It's PCR polymerase chain reaction. The principle of polymerase chain reaction is his baby. It's what he was noted for. He won the Nobel Prize for it. And he said polymerase chain reaction is not a diagnostic tool. It's simply a replication technique. So that, that's being more precise. And he mysteriously died, fit, healthy guy, a month before the, um, you know, the pandemic really kicked off. Yeah, and, uh, and astonishingly enough, Jeremy, that more and more people, the more you dig into this, the more you see that it doesn't add up. And uh, Say Qureshi said to me, he's following Principia Scientific and said, there's a lot of similarities with what you found out with guys like Michael Mann using computer models and playing fast and loose with data, very similar to the way virology is done. I mean, we talked about Cox postulates, the idea that you, again, it's like the scientific method, their method, you have to verify, there's certain processes you need to go through to have a bona fide, uh, reprodu reproducible uh, sample. As people know, the main conception of a, of a vaccine is you, you take um, the pathogen from an infected animal, say a guinea pig, and you, you take that from that animal, you put it into a petri dish, you, cult, you, you create a culture, you cultivate it, and then you put that into another guinea pig. And if you see um, the same symptoms, you kind of then convince yourself that that therefore proves there is a pathogen. So that's how it works. But nobody was able to take a sample of the COVID-19 and reproduce it in a petri dish and infect another guinea pig. So, so that's where we are. It's not reproducible in that sense. It's not a proven infection. I mean, again, that, that's why we then went to the, the stupidity of the asymptomatic 
infection, as you know. COVID-19 has a whole array of symptoms. That you, pretty much anything is COVID-19 now. So, uh, But John, do you, do you know about the same problems with HIV and PCR? There is a Pandora's box of note. No, I know. I, I've got to be careful here because uh, I, I've got to <laughs> You know, I said to Joe Olsen, uh, 12, 13 years ago, when we started Principia Scientific, the, the whole point of Principia Scientific was about truth. I mean, we were probably one of the original truthers in that sense. We were so sick of secret science. We liked the idea of transparency. And you know? we were saying to each other, as I said, Joe Olson was a materials engineer and he could never get his head around 9 11. He said he, he watched those twin towers come down. And the ne next question is, what about the third building? Third building? Yeah, WTC 7. So again, you know, we and I said, Joe, Joe, let's just one thing at a time, because if we come out with all these conspiracies, we're going to be dismissed and people ignore us. Let's just focus on the global warming thing. And then our day will come with 9-11. Um, but we always plan to do that because we saw that there's a lot of overlap. And again, with the um, JFK assassinations and so forth, the idea of conspiracy theory it, now, you're becoming a, the terminology is going to go towards now a conspiracy realist because these things are being proven true time and time again. Now, we, we were saying three years ago, Jeremy, the whole point of lockdowns was the six, meter, the six foot, two meter distancing. It had no basis in science. By the same token, the 1.5 degree limit on global warming has no basis in science. These are numbers concocted by policymakers to fit their agenda. Um, it, you know, the science is then taken to fit policy, and, and they, they try and do it all, with all kinds of trickery. So, yeah, it, you know, this is how we do things. We, 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 we see the, the flaws in their reasoning, and we try and poke holes in it and um, hold it up to the camera, or hold it up to the light of day and say to everybody, look, look for yourself and see where the anomalies are. Um, Observation is the key, isn't it? Look around you. I mean, the great joke that I saw in 2020, 2021 was um, reporters going to visit the Amish community in America <laughs> and saying, why, why do you have no infections? <laughs> well, we have no TV. <laughs> they, were, they were ahead of the curve. They were ahead of the curve. And it, you know, it makes you smile. But again, <laughs> as, you, we, as we said on, uh, on TNT Radio, the reason South Africa has done so well during the COVID crisis is you don't have a coordinated and effective government to impose all these uh, conditions. And, you know, it's wonderful. The countries that have done, done least well are the Five Eyes countries, the Five Eyes being the Anglophone countries, who have very, very compliant, very obedient um, population who tend to trust their governments. Governments tend to be more organized, better funded, um, they're more effective in, in imposing you know, to authority. And uh, yeah, we, we've had the worst outcomes. And uh, it's something that um, people will wake up bit by bit, but you have to have the ability to join the dots. And, you know, I, from what I read, 12% of us have critical reasoning skills, Jeremy. So we're in a small minority that can figure this out for ourselves. So our job is to try and commun communicate the reality to those who find it a bit harder to join the dots. This is the, the, the beauty of post-normal science. Post-normal science, as I said, was concocted um, to allow governments to give the veneer of a scientific uh, rationale 
to their policy. Rather than just admit that they, it's a belief, it's a cult, they try and adopt science. And the, the thing is, their tool is the computer, the computer model. Because again, it's that box of tricks. And it's secret science. You don't actually see what goes into it. All you know is the outcome. This is what the graph says. And uh, it's, it's compelling because all of us are swayed. We're all enamored by the idea of technology. We all believe technology is infallible, mostly infallible. We tend to believe, because um, we trust in science, we know that engineers, applied scientists, for example, build bridges, they build transport systems, you know, they build aircraft, and they don't fail. You know, 99, 99 times out of 100, it will not go wrong. So you tend to think they're all in the same group, but they're not. There's, there's applied scientists and there's academics. And academics in university are ostensibly funded by either government or by big pharma organizations like that. So again, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Mm. And it's always been like that. And it's something that people need to wake up to. We're waking up to it in terms of a lack of trust in the medical profession. We're beginning to re realize that a lot of doctors sold out. Those who pushed the vaccine sold out. They were getting paid $20, $30 a jab or more. And they were working on volume. You know, They were buying Ferraris and Porsches on the strength of the pandemic. A lot of people got very rich during the pandemic. It, it, it's no coincidence that those who got rich were those who were pulling the levers. Those in position of authority were cashing in in the UK government, ministers with PPI agreements, those who set up companies just before the, before the pandemic. It's all very cleverly done. Um, again, I don't think human nature is going to change, Jeremy. Um, you know, there are those who can fool others and those who are ready to be fooled. Stephen, Stephen Kroger's is a genius, really. I mean, he, he was kicked off his PhD because, again, he wouldn't tell the line. And he, again, he, he pulled hard to, to, to coin a pun, pulled holes in the Big Bang and the black hole theory, you know, and um, he said it doesn't, it doesn't stack up. Even mathematically, it doesn't stack up. I mean, if you, if you work through the math carefully, it, it just doesn't make sense. And uh, people are persuaded by these wonderful images, CGI images. Hmm. Uh, I've seen them. And I, I was kind of going along with it myself until I began, my, I switched on my skeptic brain a bit more and said, hold on. There's a lot of money involved in this. Billions of dollars go in research. Think of CERN. Think of the Hadron Collider. You know, think of that. There's a lot of money, a lot of careers invested in this. People don't like to admit they're wrong. And I'm persuaded more by the electric universe people. I'm persuaded more by that group who argue. Go back to a guy called Professor Fred Hoyle. Fred, Professor Fred Hoyle was the actual guy who gave the term Big Bang. He, he gave it during a radio interview as a, as a joke, you know, a dismissive joke, Big Bang. Fred Hoyle was right, I believe. Fred Hoyle, you know, he was spinning in his grave when he, people, people like Hawking, Stephen Hawking came along and, uh, were, you know, building on the, on the crap. You know, we've got more dark matter, more string theory. And, and it's like sticking, these are sticking plaster solutions to try and patch up the whole thing because it's falling apart. They've had over 100 years. And what we do is, as you say, we're looking out into deep space. Where our, our research is growing. We're learning more about uh, other planets. And we're learning, for example, hydrocarbons are everywhere. So 
fossil fuel theory is, is being busted. If there's hydrocarbons on other planets in the solar system, and we are told on, on Earth hydrocarbons are fossil fuel, we know there's no dead dinosaurs in the other parts of the solar system. Therefore, this whole concept of dinosaurs and limited energy is out, is thrown out, you know, out, out the window. And um, Fred Hoyle said, you know, it's a, it's a mistake. The, the idea of the Big Bang and so forth, it's a misreading of Doppler shift. The idea that Doppler shift, the very core of what proves the Big Bang theory is the idea that you get this Doppler shift. It's the, I mean, to, to use it in simplistic terms, when you drive a car, you have like an ambulance, a fire, a police car going by, you get a, you know, that sound of, that effectively, you see the Doppler shift in light. It's a red shift, if you like. You see it as a red shift. Um, and those who are skeptical said, well, hold on. You don't need an expanding universe for that. Just like the police car passes you, you could be rotating. You could be going round. You don't need to. I mean, because we're finding the more we look in, into deep, dark space, the more we're realizing there's more and more stuff out there that doesn't fit the consensus view of the Big Bang and black holes. So modern cosmology is in a bit of a quandary, and a lot of people are waking up to this. And it's like the mainstream don't want to admit that there's more compelling proof of, of a, an electric universe. You know, the idea that uh, things are governed by electricity. We're electric beings, we know, we're driven by electricity. Um, you could probably explain gravity by electricity if you look into it deeply enough. Um, and like I said in my, on my show on TNT Radio, Sky Dragon Slaying this weekend, we had a guy, uh, Troy Von Brock, he's working with uh, Dr. Norbert Schwarzer. They're, they're finding, they're, they're trying to look for a, a theory of, every, a unified theory of everything. You can't get that with modern mm. cosmology. Because the problem with modern cosmology is you've got the Big Bang, which, which uh, in effect says everything's uh, moving apart, and yet a black hole is the opposite. Everything's coming together. Makes no sense. So, makes no sense. Mm. There's no way you can come up with a convincing theory that would you know, resolve that conundrum. So that's the kind of thing we're up against, Jeremy, and people don't want to let go of it. As I said, science progresses one funeral at a time. You know, uh, we got to wait for people to die. David Resnick, who's a biochemist, been on my show a few times, he wrote a great piece a few decades ago, actually, in which he, well, it's called The Tyranny of Dogma, and he in it, he, he talks about how science has become like a cult. Yeah, and I believe that because the problem, it's an it's a inescapable problem with knowledge. The more knowledge available to you, we're limited, aren't we? Our brains, our capacity to learn, there's only 24 hours in a day. There's only so much you can take in. There's only so much you can hold in your memory. So to study this stuff, to, to go to university, to get educated, to get a PhD, etc. And every day, there's thousands of new uh, facts coming out, you know, more publications. You can't keep up with the literature. You, can, you cannot physically keep mm. up with the published literature. Um, so what's happening is we're going to have to, what we have done is we've agreed to specialize um, over the last 100 years or so. We've, had, we've got sub-departments of science. We've got new uh, fields of science, virology being one, climate science being another. You can argue that climate science is perhaps the most complicated science field because it really encompasses every branch of science. You've got oceanography, you've got um, thermodynamics, you know, you've got uh, astrophysics. You've what about got evolutionary? 
What about evolutionary theory? Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about that, about the origin of species, Darwin, that kind of thing. And lots, that, of, again, lot, lots of computer modeling going on there also. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, a lot of people have made a valid point. Where are the transitory, uh, the transitions in species? We, we seem to just have breaks. We, we see distinct species, but we don't see the gray. You know, we don't see the transitional species. I mean, we can create them artificially. As you know, we can create hybrids. We do it very well with dogs, for example. With dogs, we can you know, interbreed dogs. We can create new species. I think if you're looking at dog breeding, that's probably a good example. If you want to be a, a Darwin, a Darwinist, if you like, Darwinian idea of, of being able to evolve, you could argue that the breeding of dogs would lend itself to that theory. But naturally speaking, and naturally, um, it, it's very hard to argue that. We know in plant, in farming, for example, we have, you know, over centuries been able to cultivate crops. We did with sheep, you know, we, we cultivate our livestock and our food uh, in such a way that we are playing God. So you could say that that is the mirror image of, of, of Darwinian science, you know, evolution. Is that evolution? You know, it, it's a good argument to have. I, mm. I, I, I think we're, we're, we're nowhere near, we, we're barely scratching the surface, and this is a problem. And, and I, I do take my hat off um, to people we've had on the show, as I refer back to last weekend, uh, Troy Von Brock. I mean, he's a very successful applied scientist. He works on multi-million dollar projects. Even he admits, you know, he loves theoretical science, but he says, we're just scratching the surface. The, the problem we have is that science is very good at conveying this notion that we know a great deal, when in fact we know very little. We're just, um, lots of things happen by chance. Discoveries are made by chance. It's trial and error. And, and, I, and I think that um, the biggest conundrum now is that there's the, effectively the collapse of the allopathic medicine, the idea that um, We've got this wonderful progress. I mean, the vaccine virology, again, is, I think, a virology is in crisis. People don't even realize it yet, but it's in crisis. Because we're at the point where people are waking up to the fact that um, we've just had a pandemic where we've got a, 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 a pathogen that doesn't really appear to exist. And it's uh, even Dr. Mike Yedden, Dr. Mike Yedden, former chief scientist of Pfizer, like three years after Principia Scientific said it, we called it first. We, we, we said, we don't think there is a COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 virus. And um, yeah, and a couple of months ago, Mike Yedden, former chief scientist of Pfizer, said, you know what? I don't think it exists. It's incredible how we're all linked, Jeremy. I mean, it's shocking. I mean, like, people have come to me and said to me, uh, oh, I, I read this on your website years ago. And you set a train of thought going, and I followed it through. And again, this is why I, I met um, scientists like Dr. Judy Weinerman and Dr. Saeed Qureshi, that again, because we are the outsiders, Jeremy, we are the outsiders, we're like beyond the pale, we're like the, the mavericks, we're like the, the, mm. the, the people who are you know, the unwashed in, in science. We, like, Thank you, thank you, thanks to the internet, we are congregating our own new platforms, and like TNT radios, TNT radios, I, I kind of um, use the analogy of like a, of a football team, you've got a goalkeeper who specializes in, in their trade, you've got a defender, you've got an attacker, 
you know, we've got different aptitudes. It's the team together that comes together with their unique um, multiplicity of skills that when you work as a team and you, and you have a focus, you can achieve more. And we were lost. We were in the wilderness 13 years ago because we weren't working together. We were seeing that our institutions that we trusted, for example, um, the Royal Institute, the um, Royal Society in the UK has betrayed everybody. We know that. We know the, the Lancet Journal, for example, is now just a mouthpiece uh, for, for Big Pharma. Institutions we used to trust can no longer be trusted. And now the BBC is a, was a wonderful institution in the UK. Now it's losing millions of viewers. People just are switching off now because um, they betrayed us. Mm. And they've sold out. And um, again, th this is, I think it's, Nature's self-correcting. I mean, we, we give too little credit to nature. You, you and I were a manifestation of a kind of a, of a chain reaction of, of a corrective process. And, and I think that's true of all of nature. I, I, I truly believe that nature is very robust. And I think life has a way of resolving mm. problems. I think that uh, as much as we think we might be polluting the planet and not doing well, we naturally, when we become wealthier, we tend to look after our environment. It, you know, those of us in the wealthy first world nations, in the top, you know, the lucky ones, we're, we're the ones who look at our environment and take care of it. Those in the third world don't have the opportunity to do that. And um, there, there's always solutions, Jeremy. I'm a great believer in the can-do mentality. And you, you, like, if you give an engineer a problem, they'll solve, mm. they'll solve it. And uh, that's the Malthusian mistake. And you go back to Thomas Malthus, that English cleric back in the 18th century, all he could see was doom and gloom. He, he completely overlooked the fact that we as humans are problem solvers. We are the most advanced problem solvers that have ever existed on this planet, and we will we will find a way. And not only that, that we we're bonded. Uh, we're unique in the sense that we we have a, a deep. Uh, reverence for life you know we have that mm. other species don't have that we are we're more spiritual but we you know we want what's best for our families but we we, we see the community we, we see beyond ourselves um that self-awareness that that uh, conception of a greater good if you like that that drives us on and most of us are, are, are well-intentioned and, and i believe that when you combine um the the can-do mentality with the inherent morality that we most of us have, then I think I'm, I'm yeah. very optimistic. You know, I'm optimistic, Jeremy. I'm not at all pessimistic. Mm. We fight evil, but we defeat evil. How can I follow your work and you, for that matter? Yeah, as you know, I'm, I'm like you, a co I'm a host on TNT Radio. Um, I do that every Saturday, uh, Saturday night. Um, if you catch it on uh, New York time, Eastern time, it's 7 till 9 p.m. It's midnight to 2 a.m. UK time. Um, Principia Scientific, just Google Principia Scientific. You'll get a lot of crap before you get to the website. But yeah, principia-scientific.com. We've been going 13 years. Um, it's a wonderful service. It's free. Please donate if you can. But, you know, we, we do it as a public service. We're registered non-profit in the UK. We're fully audited by government. We're not charlatans. So again, look into us. Check us out. You know, nothing's alive. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.